Come on down to New Deal Used Cars. Come on down and squeeze one on us. I'm Tom Panneries, and this is Origin Story. Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are! I don't know who you are or where you came from. Now on, you do as I can. Okay? Hello and welcome back to Origin Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collected comics. This time around, I'm back to looking at only one comic, and this comic will be The Transformers number 32, which was released on June 16, 1987, and has a $1 cover price. Our cover is by Frank Springer, and that shows a battle between Autobots and Decepticons at a used car lot while the sleazy-looking owner of the lot looks on in horror. It's another serviceable cover that shows what's going on in the story, which is more or less anything that I can ask from this series. In fact, most of the covers from the series seem to be consistent in this regard, and that makes me feel good. Moving to the inside, the title of the story is Used Autobots, and our creative team is as follows. Bob Budiansky, writer, Don Perlin, pencil breakdowns, Ian Aiken and Brian Garvey finishes, Pat Brousseau, letterer, Nell Yamtov, colorist, Don Daly, editor, and Jim Shooter was your editor-in-chief. We are somewhere in California, and the Decepticon helicopter Vortex is firing at Goldbug, Blaster, and the other Autobots we saw last saw in issue 30. Blaster transforms and manages to get the upper hand, first by riding two of the other cars and firing at Vortex, and then by disrupting the Decepticon with his sonic blaster. Our heroes then go in search of gas, and when they find a Black Rock gas station, they think they'll be able to fuel up, but are set upon by agents of RAT, R-A-A-T, which according to the editor's note is Rapid Anti-Robot Assault Team, a government military unit whose mission is to destroy all the Transformers in the United States. They fight them off long enough to flee, although Blaster does stop to save one of the RAT soldiers from burning alive. Meanwhile, at the Ark, Wheeljack gives Grimlock the geothermal generator that they've been building for months, which taps heat from beneath the volcano where they're situated and turns it into energon cubes. This will help with their energy supply. Grimlock talks in a Hulk smash tone about how humans are weak and then finds out that Goldbug and Blaster are in trouble. Grimlock tells Hotspot to go with the rest of the Protectobots and find our two hard-traveling heroes and bring him back them back to him. Later, our fugitive Autobots find a used car lot and hang out there. They rest for the evening and next morning, Steve, the owner of the used car lot, gets a list of the six vehicles the police are looking for and he then tries to swindle a family of customers. His assistant, Clifford, who is fixing the odometers on the cars in the lot, finds the six cars and then tells Steve about them. Soon the Autobots reveal themselves and they tell Steve that all they really want is some fuel. 
Steve agrees, tells Clifford to buy a few cases of soda, and then calls the cops. That night, the army shows up, and when the Autobots get ready to fight back, they can't get going. It seems that Steve has poured the soda in their gas tanks. The army's ready to take them in, but the Combaticons show up, and they say that they want our heroes. Then the Protectobots show up, and they're ready to fight. The commander in charge of the army unit at the used car lot explains that, according to them, all the robots are working together. Steve worries about not getting the $300,000 that he's supposed to get because he called the cops, and then suggests that the robots bid for who gets the six cars. That doesn't happen, as Blaster manages to get the Autobots the correct fuel, and they make a break for it. Steve gets his check from the army, who tells him to take cover, and a fight is on. The used cars are mostly destroyed, and the Autobots win, but Steve's check is disintegrated, and we end with the Protectobots pointing their guns at Blaster and telling him that their orders are to take him back to Grimlock for trial and execution. Next up, Blaster's fate revealed in the battle you've been craving, Bruticus versus Defensor. There were points I, where I didn't know what to make of this, because aside from the characters I've already seen and already know, I didn't really remember who many of these characters were, especially the Protectobots. And maybe I knew who they were 30 years ago? I'm really not sure. Because much of this issue felt to me like a show-the-toy mandate issue, really. For a story where Goldbug and Blaster are on the run, we seem to run into new Transformers on quite a regular basis. At least here, there's a big fight at the end that destroys a fair amount of property, so I can't complain too much. Plus, the editor promotes a more conclusive story in the next issue and says that Blaster's fate will be revealed. Here we have them getting into more trouble, that's pretty much it. It's not terrible by any means. In fact, much like last issue, it's a one-and-done story that plays well with the little kid disposability that these comics often had. Budiansky makes this fun and interesting, so I can't be too critical of it. And just like the artwork from previous issues, this is very solid. The robots look like robots, they're supposed to be, and the action is well done. This is quite possibly the shortest review ever, but there's really not much to say about Transformers number 32. It's not too terrible of an issue, but it's just another comic that is there for you to pick up, read, and throw in a drawer. Plus, I have to say that this was just one to get through to me. Because although the next issue teaser promises the fight ill fate of Blaster and this battle between Bruticus and Defensor, what'll really happen is actually... Uh, is actually different, and I'm gonna have to figure out why it was why it was advertised one way and came out the other. But issues 33 and 34 of Transformers, which are also my last two issues of the series, are actually a special out of continuity two-parter that reprints a story from the UK Transformers series, and that is a storyline I've been waiting for since I started looking at this series as part of this podcast. I can't wait to get to it even if it's going to take at least another month. For now, though, I'm going to take a break and I'll be right back. Sawate, my name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Batgirl the Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters, and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. 
I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spalai, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history and determines whether they are hot or not, Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their Batgirl Year One work, Brian Q. Miller on his Batgirl run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the Batgirl Spoiled, the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Babs lovers. So I didn't have a cable as a kid. This is something I've probably beaten to death by now, but it's true. And as a result, I had to go over to a lot of friends' houses if I wanted to watch MTV. It was during the summer of 1987 that I actually really did discover MTV for real. Now, truth be told, I'd known of MTV for a few years by this point. My cousins and I all watched it at their houses, and whenever I would visit, I'd watch it. And I saw the I Want My MTV commercials on TV all the time. Music videos were not a foreign concept to me either, because they would air on various broadcast video programs and stuff in syndication. And uh, there were a few things that were kid-oriented that used the music video format. But I think much like horror movies at this age, they were kind of there, and I'd come across one here or there, but never actively sought them out. Boobs changed that. No, really. There came a point around the time I was 10 or 11, so 4th or 5th grade, that that I became aware of the existence of nudity in movies. I'm pretty sure that I first encountered it in Commando, when Arnold Schwarzenegger is fighting Bill Duke in the hotel and they crash into a room where a couple have been having sex, and there was no shortage of gratuitous nudity in any number of the action movies I watched throughout my formative years. And thanks to Canon Films for that. But in 1987, there were a few music videos that had so many references to sex in them that I honestly couldn't help not only notice, but be fixated on them whenever I go to a friend's house and we watch MTV. I'm going to focus on two in particular here, although I do need to first give a shout-out to George Michael's I Want Your Sex, because that single came out in June of 1987, and the video was all over MTV for most of that summer. In fact, I think it ran as the number one video on the daily Dial MTV Countdown. Yes, there was a Dial MTV Countdown show a good decade before Total Request Live, and it either uh, I Want Your Sex on that countdown was either replaced by or replaced the Fat Boys Beach Boys Wipeout video as the number one spot. Anyway, if you watch the video for I Want Your Sex now, it's not necessarily more tame or I don't know. It's 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 I've I watched it and I'm like, oh, this is a lot more artsy than I remember it. I don't know. Andy Monahan directed it, and he seemed to be focused on giving the video an air of some sort of sophistication or pop slickness as opposed to the vulgarity that is Motley Crue's Girls, Girls, Girls. And then again, the two acts were quite different in their style. George Michael and Motley Crue were very, very different. And Girls, Girls, Girls isn't actually one of the two videos that I'm going to talk about. 
I remember that video, and I, I noticed all boobs and butts and strip clubs and drinking, and it aired endlessly, so I probably did see it about a hundred times. In fact, when I was in fifth grade, I remember that someone had a copy of the album, and it was they were passing it around between people in my class before someone's parents got a hold of it and confiscated it. Oh, suburbia, the 80s. The two videos that I am going to talk about are from groups that skirted the hair metal genre, but might be more suitable for that corporate rock label because they weren't as entrenched in hair metal as, say, Rat or Poison or Crew. The first one is definitely a solid piece of corporate rock, and that is Alone by Heart. If you're unfamiliar with Heart, they started in Seattle during the 1970s. They performed classics like Magic Man and Barracuda. But 1970s Heart is completely different from 1980s Heart. 1970s Heart is harder edged. It falls squarely into the classic 70s hard rock genre. It wouldn't be out of place next to Deep Purple, Foghat, Kiss, or any of the other bands on the Dazed and Confused soundtrack. But 80s Heart? Whew, you're talking the same synth-heavy pop-rock condition that infected a number of groups and brought forth Starship from the abyss of pop music. Nothing at all, never, and what about love were the three big singles from their 1985 self-titled album. And then you had These Dreams, which was also from that album and was a monster power ballad that hit number one in 1986. Alone, which is the debut single off the 1987 album Bad Animals. Well, that was them trying to follow up the success of these dreams, and it became a huge number one hit for them and the biggest hit ever for the band. The video, because I was going to talk about the video here, is a mix of live performance footage and shots of both Anne and Nancy Wilson, the two sisters who were the core members of the group, and I remember this video distinctly for a couple of things. First, the song. Say what you want about the huge difference in material and quality between the 80s heart and 70s heart. But Alone is a killer power ballad. And I really don't think that the band really begins to suck until the song All I Want to Do is Make Love to You, which is on the album Brigade and is honestly, truly awful. I'm sorry. It's a terrible song. 
But I will listen to Alone any chance I get. Unironically, not a guilty pleasure at all. I love Alone. Probably even more than Barracuda, which I'm sure is like rock snob blasphemy or something. Second, I always remembered that there were two women singing in the song, which is something that I didn't get to see a lot of on MTV. There was that Tapau video that got played a lot, and I think I might have to talk about that some other time. But you didn't really see a lot of videos where women had guitars and they were doing solos. Like Lita Ford, maybe? Old Pat Benatar stuff? What's the name of that female hair metal group? Is that Britney Fox? I can't exactly remember. But anyway, these sorts of things got noticed. And you had the red-headed one and the black-headed one, because black-haired one, because I didn't know them very well. I didn't know who their names were. And Nancy Wilson, by the way, was the redhead and has the black hair. And third, boobs. There's one shot in the video, and it literally is like a few seconds and that's it, where Nancy Wilson is riding a horse, and you can see right down her top. Now, I have no idea why she's on a horse, other than it was the 80s. She's riding a horse. And they didn't do a similar shot for Anne, because as I found out a number of years later on Behind the Music on VH1, this is around the time that Ann Wilson was gaining a lot of weight. And if you watch the video closely enough, you'll see that there are a lot of close-up shots of her face, some faraway shot where she's wearing black clothing, something that the record company insisted on in order to hide her weight gain. And since her sister was not gaining weight, they put her on a horse. And we saw the tops of her boobs. And really, it's not like this is as mind-blowing as a Samantha Fox poster, but when I hear alone and I think of the video, the only image I remember is Nancy Wilson riding on a horse and seeing the tops of her boobs. They're just, like, seared into my memory. Now, the other video that I'm going to talk about is that's seared into my memory. And really into the memory of every person in my generation or at least every guy in my generation, is Here I Go Again by Whitesnake. Here I go again on my own Going down the only road I've ever known Like a drifter I was born to walk alone And I've made up my mind You don't really need me to say much about this, do you? Oh, but I will. White Snake was basically David Coverdale. And, well, it was David Coverdale. I really don't know much about the band's catalog beyond this album, which my friend had. I remember the song The Still of the Night um, was a really, really kick-ass song. But I do remember uh, Coverdale was front and center in all these videos, preening, kind of looking Ultimate Warrior-like. Actually kind of looking a little more like the Ultimate Warrior when the Ultimate Warrior tried to make that comeback like sometime in the 90s. He was wearing that big duster coat coming out. And, and it's a great song if you're hearing the right version. Now, I, I played a little bit of um, of the song at the top of the thing, uh, but there's a mix that gets played on the radio Sometimes, especially on those like you know lighter, uh, not a totally adult, light FM to adult content, but not like modern music ch stations, and it has way too much organ. It kind of really makes the song suck.
But the version I'm used to is a little more stripped down and sounds less like some crappy Starship song and more like polished hard rock. Again, like Alone, it's genuinely good. It holds up after 30 years, and, and I really can't say that for everything from this era. But the video. Let's talk about this video. You have Coverdale performing, and he's the only one performing, because I, I looked this up, the rest of the band had been fired and he hadn't replaced them yet or something. Something to that effect. But honestly, if I didn't tell you that, you wouldn't have remembered it. Because the only thing you can remember from this video can be something in two words, and that's Tawny Katane. Tawny Katane had some acting credits to her name by this point, and I'm pretty sure this, but this video made her career. Uh, she was dating Coverdale at the time, and they would go on to marry. But in the video, she's dancing on two jaguars, and she's sitting next to Coverdale, and she's distracting him with her sexiness while he's trying to drive. And then she hangs out the passenger side and. Well, if pop-up video is any indication, we, we do see her nipple. And while I had no way of processing Girls, Girls, Girls by Motley Crue at 10, I certainly could process an attractive woman hanging out of a car window and having a wardrobe malfunction. And then we watched the Family Life curriculum film strips in the fifth grade, and we would understand everything. Actually, is there anything more telling about early puberty than the juxtaposition of a Transformers comic? seeing Tawny Katane's nipple. I'll be back on June 23rd for G.I. Joe Special Missions number 7, which is a standalone covert ops story, and Web of Spider-Man number 31, which is part one of the six-part Craven's Last Hunt storyline. Oh, it's going to be good. All right, so thanks again for listening. Uh, you can go ahead and leave me feedback at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You can check out the Pop Culture Affidavit website at popcultureaffidavit.com where I'll post show notes. I'll dig up those videos and post them. And I will 
also uh, try to post some other things I have on um, maybe uh, the two different mixes of, of Here I Go again. You can also check out the Facebook page and leave some comments there. Spread the word. Thank you to everybody on Twitter who's been enjoying this. Uh, Long Spock, Longbox Crusade, Coffee and Comics blog, uh, Ryan Daly, Dr. Ange, Kyle uh, like a bunch of you guys have been, uh, have been retweeting this. And uh, I appreciate all of it. Until the next episode, though, uh, thanks again for listening and take care.